It's Tuesday, May 7th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. A new report is again making a dire prediction about the future of our planet. The diversity of life on the planet is deteriorating much faster than we thought, and up to one million species are threatened with extinction, many of which could be lost within decades. Andrew Friedman, science editor at Axios, joins us for the transformational changes needed to avert this, and the good news, it's not too late just yet. Next, the U.S. has deployed a carrier strike group and a number of bombers to the Middle East to serve as a deterrent to Iran based on new intelligence that American forces could be in danger in that area. Brian Bender, defense editor at Politico, joins us for what this deployment means and how Iran-U.S. relations are going. Finally, the hit HBO show Game of Thrones is in its final season and fans are rabid when it comes to catching all the little details in the show. But did you notice that Starbucks cup sitting on the table? It's a flub that many just couldn't believe. My producer Miranda joins us for what happened and how the PR value of this mistake could mean well over $1 million for Starbucks. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. should recognize that the basic message is the same as what the scientific community has been saying for more than 30 years. Biodiversity is important in its own right. Biodiversity is important for human well-being, and we humans are destroying it. Joining us now is Andrew Friedman, science editor at Axios. There's a new report out from the, it's a mouthful, the Intergovernment Science Policy Platform on Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services. The report basically says that humans are transforming the Earth's natural landscape so dramatically that as many as one million plant and animal species are now at risk of extinction. They say this could happen over the course of a few decades. They're calling for some transformational changes to the way we operate as a society to put us back on course. What do we know about this report, Andrew? So this report can be looked at kind of as doing for biodiversity what the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC, which is much better known, what that's done for climate change, in that it is meant to inform policymakers and broader society about what is the state of global nature right now. It's the first time they've done a global report like this, and it was put together by 150 or so primary authors from 130 different countries, including the U.S., as well as a larger group of scientists also gave input. And then member governments had to approve it. So a representative the U.S. government helped approve this report. Essentially, this report, you know, it sounds really bleak, but it's Saying, and they said this is a press conference in Paris. It is repeating what scientists have said for the past 30 years in terms of this is the direction we're headed in. And it's saying we're getting close to the point of no return on losing many species, many iconic species, many lands and ocean areas that we need to survive and thrive as people. And if we are to turn this around, we need to take action in the next couple of decades that this is more of an emergency than we had previously thought. Yeah, I mean, these reports come out and it's tough for a lot of people to really accept them. These are all reports uh, that look forward to the future. Things we, as you said, we need to change. We need to start implementing new procedures with the way we operate or something like this could happen. And a lot of people that live with just whatever's right in front of them dismiss these reports a lot of times. 
So let's get into some of the details there. What are we at risk of losing and how are we changing the environment to facilitate this potential loss? The areas at greatest risk based on this report are tropical areas. So the cradle of the greatest biodiversity on the planet, really you're talking about the tropical rainforests that ring the equator. You're talking about even the, the ocean equivalent is uh, coral reef ecosystems and land use change tearing down rainforest in order to put in palm oil plantations or cattle ranching, what Brazil may be about to do under their new government, which is very pro-development. And what the report is suggesting that needs to be done is nothing less than the opposite of what we've done. So basically, (laughs) to get to this point, we have engineered an economy that has built tremendous prosperity by extracting resources from the natural world. Some countries are more sustainable about this than others, but by and large, humanity has made a huge footprint on the planet, and this report spells that out. And what it says is we have to change our way of doing business, transform basically the way that we get our resources, the way that we use our resources, the way that we build our cities, the way that we consume things. In there are references to the culture of consumption needing to change. This report is a wake-up call on biodiversity in particular. And by biodiversity, I mean the relationship between different species, the how many different species we have on this planet. And the more biodiversity that we have, the better off the natural world is and the better off humanity is, considering we get so many services from the natural world, be it medicines, be it food, all sorts of things. The total estimated number of plant and animal species on the earth is about 8 million, and up to a million of these could be threatened with extinction if we don't do something. We hear a lot about climate change in the big general sense of it. How does climate change figure into this report? Because a lot of this has to do with how we're changing the land and changing the ecosystem of the, of the planet. How does climate change figure into all this? The report says climate change is actually not the biggest factor to date driving the trends that we've seen. Land use change and the change of marine resources, mostly overfishing and not protecting enough sufficient areas of the ocean are the biggest drivers. And I think it ranks climate change as as number three. But if you look into the future, what the report says is that climate change is going to be sort of a threat amplifier so that ecosystems such as tropical rainforests and ecosystems that are in the northern latitudes, in the Arctic especially, are going to be stressed by rapid changes in the climate. And that will result in some extinctions that will result in massive ecosystem changes as well. The last question I have about all of this is, you know, everybody always wants to know, well, how does it affect me? We could be at potentially losing a bunch of animal species, plant species, insects and all that. But how does that affect us? One of the observations I noticed was that the report found that there's downward trends in nature's ability to provide clean air, water, good soil, other essentials that we're going to need in the future. So, I mean, that's how it's affecting us as human beings. That's exactly right. This isn't a, well, you don't live in the rainforest, so it's not going to affect you problem, or uh, this is only going to affect that ecotourism vacation that you were thinking of taking in Belize. You know, this is a medicine that could be developed next year to fight cancer, won't be developed because it would have been based on a species of coral reef that 
died out or an organism in the rainforest that died out. Different options of getting energy, different options of basically the way we do things is not sustainable and, and needs to change. And the report, I think, makes the most connections to us and our lives by saying, hey, this isn't just a fuzzy environmental report here. This isn't like a Greenpeace report. No offense intended to Greenpeace, but this is a report that basically spells out that if you want to continue living lives to the standard that you are accustomed to, we need to change things in order to make sure that we have the natural resources still available to us. And it's very stark. And they went out of their way not to be hopeless the press conference, really saying that we are we have the ability to turn things around if we have a shared global commitment to doing so, but that all of the global goals that have been established till now, sustainable development goals and other goals, we're off track and are not going to meet them unless we redouble our efforts. Andrew Friedman, science editor at Axios, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. We have continued to see uh, activity that leads us to believe that there's escalation that may be taking place. And so we're taking all the appropriate actions, both from a security perspective and well as um, uh, our ability to make sure that the president has a wide range of options in the event that something should actually take place. Joining us now is Brian Bender, defense editor at Politico Pro. The U.S. has deployed an aircraft carrier strike group and Air Force bombers to the Persian Gulf. The reasoning behind this is that there's new intelligence that suggests that there's some allied interests and American forces that could be in danger by Iranian forces. So this is just kind of a show of force. Uh, It serves as a warning to Iran. What do we know about this deployment? USS Abraham Lincoln Aircraft Carrier Battle Group, which has been on deployment since early April. It left Norfolk, Virginia, and has been exercising in the Mediterranean. It's now being redirected pretty quickly from there to the Middle East region, probably the Persian Gulf, although the Pentagon hasn't said specifically. That's an aircraft carrier, but it's also a battle group. So the aircraft carrier would be accompanied by other warships. And then, as you mentioned, a bomber task force, which means sending bomber aircraft to the region to some undisclosed base where they could be closer to Iran. Both of these together are very stark signal to Iran that if it's thinking of attacking U.S. interests in the region and there's some indications that the Iranians may be up to something, that they should think twice about this. What's the uh, timeline for their arrival there? Are we expecting a couple of days or something? If this battle group is in the Med, they would transit through the Red Sea and the Suez Canal within a couple of days, probably. And, and if they are going to go all the way around to the Persian Gulf, that may take another week or 10 days or so. But the U.S. also has other forces in the region, obviously. This is really a show of force, if you will. It doesn't make a huge difference militarily, but it certainly sends a clear signal to Iran that we're beefing up our presence in the region in case you're thinking of doing something. And, and you know, all of this has been building for weeks, for months. This week will be a, the one-year anniversary. Wednesday will be the one-year anniversary of President Trump pulling out of the Iran nuclear deal. Since then, the U.S. has ratcheted up sanctions. Last month, we designated 
the Islamic Republic's Revolutionary Guard Corps is a terrorist organization. That was a pretty provocative move by the U.S. State Department, basically saying that an arm of the Iranian military is a terrorist group. The Iranians didn't like that. Even some in the Pentagon didn't like that, warning that this might force the Iranians to retaliate right. against our interests in Iraq, maybe in Yemen, maybe in other countries where they could target U.S. troops or facilities. And they did this very same thing back to us. Uh, the president of Iran just signed a bill declaring all American troops in the Middle East terrorists and labeled the U.S. government a state sponsor of terrorism. So there's a little tit for tat on that front. Continuing with this push on Iran, the Trump administration is really trying to push a lot of economic pressure, trying to drive their oil experts down to zero. As you were laying out, this has kind of been ratcheting up for months. Do we know what the specific threats were? I've been seeing that officials have not really said what these threats to the troops were exactly. It's not clear, although we spoke to some sources that indicated that there has been a dramatic increase in potential threats to the U.S. embassy in Baghdad in Iraq. And it's been a number of years, but back when the U.S. had a large military presence in Iraq during the war, there were Shia militias that were supported, armed by Iran, that were attacking U.S. troops and killed U.S. troops. So, you know, there's a history here in Iraq of Iran using its proxies to go after U.S. troops or U.S. targets. So that's one place people are worried about, that Iran could, if you will, turn back on some of these proxies who could go and attack the U.S. embassy, could attack U.S. forces. We still have over 5,000 U.S. troops in Iraq advising the Iraqi military, the Iraqi security forces. So that's one area where there is concern. The Iranians... They have a navy. They could cause problems in the Red Sea. They could hamper oil exports of other countries like Saudi Arabia, which is an ally of the U.S., of course. The Iranians have a range of options and a range of proxies, terrorist groups, other organizations around the region that could wreak havoc in a lot of different ways. Another example is Israel, Gaza. We've seen a flare-up of violence there with Hamas firing rockets into Israel. Hamas is known to be allied with Iran. Palestinian Islamic Jihad, which is another even more virulent terrorist group, is even much more aligned with Iran. So you could see Iran sending signals to some of its allies in the region to attack Israel. So there's a lot of things that the Iranians could do. And I think there's enough intelligence out there or enough indications that the White House took this pretty dramatic step of saying, we're sending an aircraft carrier, we're sending bomber aircraft. We would normally have that kind of stuff in the region anyway, but I think this is the public messaging here. In some ways, public threat not to act out. The last question I have is, uh, what do we know about Iran and their nuclear capabilities? As you said, that we withdrew from the nuclear deal that we had uh, about a year ago. I saw some brief headline that Iran could be in breach of the deal because everybody was kind of still just holding the same pattern for the most part. What do we know? Has anything changed with them in that respect? As far as we can tell from the public reporting, the Iranians have stuck to the agreement, even though the U.S. pulled out. You know, there are other parties to this agreement, Europeans, Russia, China. But we're now seeing signals that Iran is considering withdrawing from some of its commitments. It's not clear what that means, but the Iranian media, the government-controlled media, is reporting that the Iranian president will make some announcement on Wednesday, which is the anniversary of Trump pulling out of the deal. Some announcement 
that the Iranians are taking some steps to, to roll back their commitments. In other words, they might turn on some of their nuclear program, maybe some research or other things that wouldn't be dramatic. It wouldn't mean that Iran has a bomb tomorrow, yeah. but it would certainly send a message to the U.S., but also to these other parties to this agreement that, that you know, Iran is being squeezed and kind of fed up and it's, it's not willing to stick to the agreement anymore. Brian Bender, defense editor at Politico Pro. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. We're sorry. <laughs> Starbucks. Restaurant was the first place to actually, you know, um, have Starbucks. And it's a little known fact. Joining me now is my producer, Miranda. Game of Thrones is the big TV phenomenon that's going on right now. It's in its eighth and final season. It's the most popular show in HBO's history. It topped The Sopranos even when it hit 20 million viewers in 2014, reaching 25.7 million viewers at its peak. The last big episode that happened last week drew 17.8 million viewers, making it the most watched HBO episode ever. Tons of stuff going on with this show. But this past week's episode, a huge, huge mistake, but it was so tiny. Not many people <laughs> noticed it. There was this big scene. It was a celebration. A lot of the characters are hanging around, drinking at the table. And these eagle eye Game of Thrones watchers found a tiny Starbucks coffee sitting on the table there and leading everybody on Twitter to explode and making fun of them for not catching this. What do we know about this, Miranda? Well, we know that it was a mistake that it was clearly not part of the set decor. She's not supposed to be drinking that coffee or tea, whatever's in that no, cup. People are drinking from goblets or out of animal horns. <laughs> yeah. so. so she's drinking a, you know, a latte. And so that's not what it's supposed to be. According to an executive producer on the show, Bernie Caulfield, he called up a radio station in New York and just wanted to publicly apologize. But then he made a joke. Everyone, and that's kind of the whole point is everybody's taking this in stride and with a ounce of good humor saying Westeros was the first place to actually have a Starbucks. So everybody's kind of goofing on it and laughing. Right. Starbucks responded to this. They said, to be honest, we're surprised she didn't order a dragon drink. Yeah. And I actually looked up what a dragon drink is, and it sounds awesome. It's mango dragon fruit shaken with coconut milk and ice. Now, HBO also responded to this, and they said, in response to, quote, inquiries from someone who saw a craft services coffee <laughs> cup in Sunday night's episode, they said the latte appeared in the episode was a mistake. Daenerys had ordered an herbal tea. So they were trying <laughs> to make fun of it. But the important distinction was... They said it was a craft services coffee drink. They're being very specific to not identify it as yeah. a Starbucks drink. And it's tough to tell. You can't really make it out that well, but it doesn't matter. It looks like a Starbucks coffee cup. And everyone's decided it's a Starbucks Everybody's cup. already decided about it. So with that in mind, let's talk about what that really means in the grander scale. What does it mean money-wise? It means it could be big money for Starbucks. According to a Twitter spokesperson, they said that Starbucks tweets were running at 10 times their average hourly rate for a Monday morning. More than 300,000 tweets the early part of the day on Monday morning. And the numbers just kept climbing throughout the day. A woman who specializes in product placement and other entertainment marketing campaigns said Game of Thrones is on the same level as the Super Bowl. 
that's how you have to think about it in terms of money for product placement. A right. product placement for a, if they wanted to use a Starbucks cup could go for anywhere from $250,000 to a million dollars, depending on how interactive the characters are with the cup and so, the brand. So this is an important distinction also. HBO doesn't accept pay for product placement in its shows because people are subscribing to see the stuff. It's all ad-free, and ad-free experience, et cetera. So if they were going to do a product placement, yeah, it would cost 250 grand. But just the PR exposure alone they say could add up to a million dollars or millions of dollars. I got to ask you, because I know you're a big Game of Thrones fan. Did you notice the cup? I did not notice it at all. And I mean, in the scene, the guys are getting really rowdy. They're drinking wine out of these animal horns. And it's a very active scene. And you're looking at facial cues and you're trying to see what's happening with the characters. I didn't notice it at all on the table until the next day when everybody started tweeting about it. So <laughs> it's just a funny thing. Thank you, Miranda. Thanks, Oscar. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcasts on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.